All right, today on the Button Up Podcast, we have Brian Park, who runs the Bombolinos Instagram, does some bespoke suiting, and is based in L.A. How are you doing, Brian? Doing great. How are you guys? Excellent. So we had a chance to meet in L.A. We went out and did a, a photo shoot up in the, the hills of uh, Hollywood. And uh, But you, I learned some fascinating things about what you do as far as bespoke suit making and you know working in Italy and that sort of thing. And so we want to talk about that. But I think the best place to start is you know where you're from and, and how did you get here. Yeah, okay. Um, I uh, was born in New York, raised in New York, New Jersey. Uh, did some school at uh, Villanova, so that was Pennsylvania. And then um, after school, uh, I was destined for life on Wall Street, but then uh, kind of didn't work out. Uh, I basically it started with me trying to figure out why a a suit was so difficult to to make or, or get. Uh, it's it kind of was it was kind of confusing to me why. Um, you could get something really cheap, uh, and also you can get something incredibly expensive, but they still shared the base, you know, look and thing. And so uh, I set about kind of trying to figure out <laughs> what this mystery was that was bespoke. Uh, and then uh, it led me down this path of taking an, inter uh, an internship, an apprenticeship, uh, learning how to cut. Uh, the people that taught the father of B and Taylor in Seoul, he's my teacher too. Um, so yeah, that's basically how I learned. And uh, from there, uh, it took me down a few other paths. But yeah, uh, that's how I learned how to cut. So this is like pre-Indochino days. This is like before there was a big mass made-to-measure type of program? Um, yeah. I get, wait, how I was living, learning that in like 2009. So I guess it's right around the same time, right? I don't know when Indochino started, but yeah. Yeah, that seems about right. What happened on Wall Street? Um, I was working uh, in something called CDS, and so it was at... Uh, a company that was a Swiss version of AIG. So I basically had a front row that summer at the meltdown. <laughs> um, yeah, I was like the newest guy on the desk and people were like trying to teach me some things as we were going along and they would have to keep going like one second. This seems kind of serious. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, uh, it, it became like a, before I basically even, got my feet wet, I was uh, inst instantaneously fired, along with 90% of the floor, and uh, it, it kind of seemed, yeah, at, at, at the time, actually, I was still thinking, there's a possibility I might still work in finance, but in the meantime, I'm going to go figure this out. Well, what, like, what kind of suits were you wearing at the time? Um, I did work uh, for a made-to-measure company in New York for a little bit, and that's kind of what got me started. Um, I... It was a uh, like my first introduction to to the world, um, and what kind of got to me was that every time I'd have conversations with people uh, about how certain things fit and how you manipulate patterns so that they fit people, I would never really get a really great clear answer. Um, so 
that was kind of the the thing that set me down learning how to do it by hand. Mm-hmm. How did you decide like, cause there are, there's like this whole spectrum now between like ready to wear and like full bespoke, like the word bespoke is so it's almost like lost its meaning. Cause like no one knows what it means anymore. So how, how did you decide where to land on that spectrum? Like, you know, go made to measure like Indochino or like go full bespoke. I totally agree with you. That word has been like used and, and totally like uh, changed to, I think it means many different things to many different people. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, the one thing I never wanted to compromise was I wanted to make the fit, uh, and the cut bespoke. So at a lot of made to measure companies, um, you can you can change certain elements of the fit, but things that seem really simple, if it wasn't allowed in the CAD system, then it wasn't able to be done, and it just seemed kind of silly. Um, and whereas when I cut a piece of paper on the pattern, you know, I can cut it however I want. It's it, it's amazing. Like uh, if someone wants a different look in the lapel. Uh, Having having a different gorge height, all these things the, that that's the the beauty in in doing something hand cut. Um, and it was easier that way than it was for me to work with a made to measure line and trying to achieve that same thing. Um, the also the fitting part of it was so difficult to do correctly in made to measure because a lot of the companies that do made to measure are based overseas. So doing uh, actual fittings uh, in person just made the most sense uh, where I can control the cut I can control the actual fit uh, seeing it rather than having to translate it with somebody in Eastern Europe Asia uh, and then get it back and then have to deal with it afterwards uh, it just it didn't make any sense to me so so Bespoke on suits was something that I, I didn't want to compromise on. It was always a, a hand cut personally that I personally saw. It just made the most sense. And then on shirting, uh, I do made to measure. Uh, I do made to measure on shirting uh, simply because shirt cutting was never really my specialty. Uh, jacket cutting, trouser cutting was my specialty. Uh, shirt cutting, no. So I do those made to measure. So at the time you're working for a made-to-measure company, and then what? How do you navigate trying to find somebody that will even give you the time to teach you this sort of this craft? Oh, that was really difficult. I mean, um, I, I was living in New York at the time, so I I went and asked some people like Leonard Logsdale for an internship, um, and he would not do it. Was not interested. Uh, a couple other people. I asked in New York as well. All of them were a combination of um, would love to help you, but don't have the time. Don't not, no interest in helping you because um, it would be like training my newest competition sort of thing. Um, and uh, how I actually fell into finding the guys that taught me and Taylor is just I don't I don't even know. It's just like pure chance sort of thing. Um, and and they're 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 great. Like I still still work with them in many ways today. They're fantastic. 
how, how long was that process? Like, it seems like such a steep learning curve. Yeah. Um, it was, it, it like from start to finish, it kind of was like a two, two year just cutting portion. Um, and then like a year for sewing. Uh, and even, even today, like my, my real focus is cutting, uh, sewing in, in the capacity as like a tailor to sew my suits is not really my focus. Uh, it's not something that, um, I, I, I think I add a lot of value on or, or could do better. Uh, I think tailors have a certain touch that would take me a really long time to do. And it's not like in, in a business sense, it's not really the thing that I have the best value to add to it. I think the cutting portion of, uh, of a suit is the most valuable thing that I can add, um, while still offering a, a, the correct amount of scale for my business and my customers. So then did you go into it thinking at some point I'm going to run my own shop and do my own tailoring or like what, what did you think was your end goal as you were starting to learn the trade? I don't know. <laughs> I just wanted, I just wanted to learn it. I didn't really have too firm of a, an idea uh, at the end of it. And frankly, the, the retail portion of it in some ways is not still not very much my interest. I, I, I want to offer really, the best parts of bespoke that I think. And if I don't happen to fall into like a classic retail model, I'm okay with that. I think if uh, people find me and like my perspective on how I do things, then I'm more than happy with that. I'm okay. I'm totally cool with slow growth. That is each customer that I bring on is ecstatic about the product and, and the way I do it. I would, I consider that a win. So was Wall Street your first exposure to like tailoring then or had you kind of you know, through college and that sort of thing, were you interested in suiting? Uh, in college, not really interested, no. Uh, in, in, yeah, I would say work kind of got me started because at the time you had to wear uh, not necessarily a jacket, but you were wearing a tie and going to work and stuff like that. Uh, so having to navigate even for myself like the wardrobe thing and was definitely some level of education that I had to go through and and it again like I didn't understand why certain people at the firm were spending thousands and thousands and just I didn't get the difference I needed to know what brought you to LA because it, it almost seems like there's more more people suiting up in New York yeah, uh, LA was a um, it was a it was a bit of a personal move. I was kind of like having grown up there. I was kind of over uh, living on the East Coast, um, and uh, some family reasons brought me out. Uh, my parents couldn't handle another winter, and so they uh, they retired out here, and um, it, it it just kind of made the most sense to to be close to them. What do you think the, uh, what have you noticed like the, in terms of like differences between uh, other than it just being more casual, but like other differences in the actual tailoring scene, uh, or the, maybe the formal wear scene of LA versus New York. 
Oh, really different. Yeah. Um, I've actually been making my things differently to cater a little bit more to, uh, you know, the Southern Californian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the way I like making the fronts now, I, unless people specifically ask for a full canvas, uh, I will actually make the suits with kind of like a hybrid where there's um, basically only a chess piece in the front, so it's super light. Um, so even if you want something warm, I would just advise to get a warmer cloth, like a flannel or something like that, but then still make it incredibly light uh, just so that it's easy and nice to wear. Like uh, I will default on a cut with no shoulder pads, that light front chest piece that way people in southern california kind of like it just like fits the the vibe and the and the weather a lot better there's definitely still a good contingent of like classic uh wear uh users here sort of thing like the lawyer and whatnot uh but i would say that los angeles uh definitely has a little bit more of the flashier wear than um than New York, your average New Yorker would probably, I felt like, would buy more, uh, you know, classic Bustids and maybe a flannel or two or something like that. But then here, it's what do you got that's loud? Interesting, yeah. So who 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 are your clients out there? Like, what kind of people are buying bespoke suits in LA? Are they just like kind of high net worth, like agents and lawyers and stuff? They're they're kind of all over the board. I mean, like, um, still a good contingent will always be the guy that's getting married and he's, uh, looking to splurge. Um, there's some of like the classic, uh, LA agent, like, um, you know, like town agent sort of guy. Mm -hmm. Then there is, uh, yeah, the lawyer. Uh, I have a weird quantity of people in the wine industry. Uh, like it's sort of abnormally large number of like sommeliers, new sommeliers, a ma- one master sommelier. So, um, yeah, I, I got somehow plugged in with food and beverage, <laughs> uh, which I think actually fits. Like, because when when I make a jacket, I I focus on things that again like really light. But another one is is uh, I'm kind of freakishly obsessed with making a jacket that you can raise your arms in comfortably. Uh, and I, uh, I took a lot of inspiration from how they make their cut at uh, Stila Latino. I think they make one of the best ready-to-wear bespoke products on the market, and I, I, really, I really appreciate how they do certain things. And whenever I would try on one of their jackets as like a, as like a test to see like how, thing, how they make things, um, I was always impressed with how comfortable their, their backs were. And so, like, uh, you know, bought one, broke it down, ripped it up. It was a very expensive, very expensive <laughs> mistake. Uh, but broke it down lear- lear- and was was impressed with, like, what seemed like a really small manipulation of the pattern. Um, proved to be incredibly profound, like, in, in terms of comfort. Looks like a jacket. Feels like a sweater. Wow. So you send. You also spend time in Italy, like at the factories and that sort of thing. How did you mm-hmm. then start to navigate that world of going from learning to cut and then into the kind of sourcing side? Before I started Bumbleinos, uh, I worked as a 
a sales agent for a company in England, and uh, that company was famous for supplying silks to people like Drake's and and Polo in America. Um, and so it got me a lot of the initial groundwork on how fabric is purchased, how, what fabric is even, like how it's made, what, what are the different types, where where in the world things are, are sourced and how they're made. And so that was, a, that was a good crash course on a lot of things. Even though the company spe- specialized in silk, having to do that work also led me to other, uh, other elements of the business, like where, where the wools are, are made. Oh, yeah, totally. So, so then, like, did you make a decision in the beginning to focus on, on Italy and, and Eastern or Western Europe, or did you also consider you know, sourcing from Asia or, or somewhere else? Yeah, never really had an interest in getting cloth uh, anywhere, in, but even Italy. I personally don't even work with uh, English mills. Not that I, not that they're bad or anything. I just don't think that they fit the, especially where I am now, the the Southern California climate. I think, obviously, some really similar in a lot of ways to Italy, and so the the fabric that works there works here, and it, they also have nice style even the way they are most italian mills are much more vertical uh than a lot of english mills like almost no english mill so you're getting a lot better quality for lower prices um and obviously the main italy brand is strong uh and so there's a little bit of you know kind of prejudice there when people know that the the fabric is italian past like certain like stats on whether or not a fabric is nice there's kind of an a intangible like the touch the the hand on it the the look the colors actually used and how they're put together i think make up for that last 10 percent on whether or not a fabric is really nice and i think the obviously the italians really have that down so yeah i mean, I mean that's it's kind of a selfish question because like I'm dealing with a bunch of chinos right now, or I have sneakers, like the minimalist sneaker right now. It's like you can get a common project made in Italy or a greats made in Italy, but then there's other shoes that are made in Vietnam or made in Sri Lanka. Like there's, they're all over the place, but then it's kind of like, is it justified that we're paying a premium for made in Italy? And from everybody that I talk to, it seems like the answer is still yes, but everybody else is catching up very quickly. Um, and so I'm always curious about that from people who are like in the field. Yeah, I mean, I think it's always a balance between like the materials used, the the way it's manufactured, uh, and then yeah, obviously like the the place actually in some ways is irrelevant. Um, how it's made, I think, is everything. Um, so, because I've I've been on on factories in in Italy that you know I don't think really make a nice quality product others are like great uh, so i think it's kind of irrelevant where it's made i think it's how it's made yeah that was kind of nolan um from thursday boots it was kind of his answer too it's like there's great shoes made in mexico and there's shoes made in the u.s that aren't that good either and so it's always interesting to hear that yeah it's also a perspective thing i think there are other people that make that, like make things a certain way and they think it's nice but i may disagree <laughs> so uh, yeah, we all, I think we all have our opinions on that, and 
not necessarily right, not necessarily wrong. Oh, yeah. Okay, so then you, you kind of get exposed to that world. You see fabrics and that sort of thing. Then what takes you from that into opening up your shop? Because you're, right now, people can't see, but you're physically in your, your retail shop in L.A. But what, how does that go? Why I started was basically when I moved away from New York, I couldn't uh, do do what was necessary for that company in England anymore. Um uh, a lot of that role, a lot of the, the fashion companies that we were selling to in New York had offices there, and I had to be in New York. The fact that I wasn't anymore uh, kind of forced me to do something else. Yeah, that was kind of the, the main start. But it's like, I, I to answer your question before, remember when you were asking if I knew down the line if I had this idea? This, uh, Slightly yes, slightly no. Like I knew that I wanted to offer what I had learned and offer to people. Uh, in, in what capacity, how I wasn't exactly sure. And then I, I came across the space, and it just kind of made sense. It was it was a really it was a good spot. Um, and what I like, yeah, for maybe the listeners who don't know, like I'm in a I'm inside of a barber shop as well. That's the other half of the shop, and. What I loved about it is is that custom suiting can often be a little intimidating. Um, I think there are people that have done it before, and you know the right they know the right questions to ask, and they know the right things to look for. And then there are other people that uh, maybe haven't gone through the experience, and all of it can seem overwhelming. There's like 45 books of fabric, uh, all these things can, can get overwhelming quickly. And I thought uh, a barbershop actually made a lot of sense where, like, it's really a relaxed environment. People are coming in for shaves and haircuts, and uh, you're talking very casually and very honestly. And so even a lot of customers that I have now through the barbershop, are, they started as that, like, uh, questions like what does that mean and what is so how does that work so what's the process here all these things were really casual and so uh it is exactly my something that really resonates with me again even with the way I, I i went about learning about this i wanted to make this and i'm always still trying to do this more and more i'm trying to make it more accessible and less intimidating than the opposite i think there's a lot of people um, that, and justifiably so, like, because the price is high, you want to make it feel special. Um, I'm not trying to make it feel any less special. I just want it to be less scary. I don't think that one bespoke suit should be the thing that you get and you wear it for your wedding and then it collects dust in your closet. Like, I want it to be something where you wear it once a week and enjoy and love and get another one and then... Uh, wear it for because you love it. Like, uh, make make it like not some special fetishized item of clothing. Just add it to the rotation. It should be kind of more normal and things that you wouldn't be scared to eat a hot dog in. <laughs> Get crazy. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think the price is a big part of it. You know, and you know people are are used to lower and lower prices for clothes these days because everything's on sale and like quality's going down, um, fast fashion and all that. But do, do you think that like, like what do your suits start at? 
If entry level. If entry level. So the absolute base price that I start at for a two piece on bespoke is sixteen hundred. Okay. And it. Yeah. And uh, it, it goes up from there, but I would say that that's incredibly. I'm again, like I said, I'm trying to make it accessible, not scary. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for bespoke, that is very accessible. Do you think that? I guess, like, where, where do you see the the industry trending? Like, do you think that people are kind of reacting to fast fashion, maybe getting more of an appreciation for a handmade, high quality garment, or do you think that that guys are going to get sticker shock at you know sixteen hundred, not for a suit? I think it's going to be like sixteen hundred. I, I I go. And I struggle with kind of regularly because I feel like it's kind of right in the middle. Uh, and I think the middle is always a difficult position to defend and, uh, because there's, like you brought up earlier, Indochino is a great example, right? They have stores. They're incredibly accessible. They have stores everywhere, right? And their prices are at the point where they're like, you know what? Let's roll the dice. Uh, let's. You don't know what you're exactly what you're getting, but... The mannequin looks cool, I guess, and I was gonna spend this on that, mm-hmm. on anyway. So let's 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 go for it, and and so that right there, um, they're getting the volumes uh, on the top end uh, when people are like sixteen hundred or like two thousand, right? Which is probably more the average for me. Uh, two thousand, like people might say something like. I'll just maybe save up a little bit longer for a little bit more and, and go to uh, Huntsman or whatever. You know what I mean? Uh, and so I think it'll be more, in some ways, maybe a little bit more polarizing. Like uh, the the bottom end will get a lot more of the, the, the bulk of the order and the bulk of the business and... I think you're seeing that when you look at the numbers of like the top five fashion companies in the world, they're all versions of fast fashion with them. They, they sell clothing cheaply mm-hmm. and then, uh, not really hauling in big profits, but they're getting most of the other end of the business would be like storied places like in Italy and in, uh, uh, in England and those types of places I think might be covering the, the top end, but they're all like only, only so much business. So obviously enough to, for everyone's happy, but that middle ground, like that I think I'm in, uh, is, is kind of tough. And I think my, my top customers and my best ones that really see value in me are the ones that would be a normal customer at somewhere on Savile Row, somewhere in Italy. Um, but uh, I offer like the the niceness where it's like all the same bits, but for less of a price. So they're again, it's more accessible. Like some some of the best customers that I have are great examples where they'll they'll come into the, the barbershop, they'll get their hair cut, and almost on a monthly basis, they're either picking something up from me or they're placing a new order with me. It's the same thing where it's like I'm encouraging through my price for you to be able to get a few things and and they look great. They're the right fabrics and all these things. And then you just beat them the hell up and then do it again in two years. So like, that's my goal to, to have that kind of a thing where people are not compromising on the fit. Yeah. I, I got a, um, my only bespoke suit is from Alan David in New York and he's like fifth generation. And 
I was talking to him about the industry and he basically, he expressed some hesitance in like handing that business off to his kids. You know, he's, he was kind of like hesitant to do that. So do you think there's like enough young people like yourself who are learning the trade and sort of carrying the torch that this, this will be, even if it's a niche and a niche offering will be like a thriving offering for a long time, but bespoke. Um, I don't know many people in America that are cutters. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't personally actually know any, um, they're obviously some, but a lot of them are older and, um, even the guy that taught me was like, why do you want to learn this? Uh, yeah, even his own son doesn't want to learn it. So, uh, he learned it now, but like at the time didn't want to learn it. And like, there's not really a, uh, a lot of people. And also again, like even my time in New York trying to, trying to get to learn it, not a lot of willing teachers. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't really know a lot of people that are going, it's like I said, it took me basically three years in earnest to learn. Um, and it, it'd be really arrogant of me to say I'm a, an expert. I'm still learning. Uh, and that's kind of an ugly prospect uh, when you could learn to code in half the time and then go work for Google. So I don't really see the appeal for a lot of people. Uh, and it, it's just, it's showing like, again, I don't really have a lot of people in my age group that are, uh, have, there are a lot of people that do this business uh, and run brands and things like that. But that was really just a matter of finding a factory. Mm-hmm. Um, like the whole learning how to cut thing was, is a totally different thing. Uh, in Italy though, and in even in Korea, a lot of other places, there are definitely a lot more young people that are learning. I would say the average American, though, not less so. That's really interesting. It kind of it seems like like a master watchmaker or watch repair. It's a similar thing where it's like the people who do it are older. There's not a lot of new blood coming in. But you mentioned something that I'm always really curious about because I do feel like there's a lot of guys that are doing this kind of like suiting where they'll go and they'll do the suit and they have a factory whether it's in italy or it's in asia mm-hmm. i know a guy in, in pittsburgh that does that sort of thing is is there a is the technolog i don't know the right word the technologization of asia what enabled that sort of thing because i don't know that that was a big booming industry before but it seems like now you know there's enough guys doing this that it's a pretty uh you know it's a pretty booming little industry for sure i mean it was uh as the um, the major made-to-measure factories of the world, and there are a few, they are as much as they are like manufacturers. They're like in all the heavy lifting. Eighty percent of that business is, uh, in my opinion, is a, they're a logistics business. Uh, they're offering many fabrics. They're allowing many fabrics to come in that even ones that they don't house uh, on a single. On a single suit, there's, you know, so many permutations of options that you can pick that um, they're like big computer operations and they have like big CAD teams, which is why they have to offer a good mix of many options with speed and that compromise becomes any option that's not available is not allowed. 
Um, and so they're, they're really impressive, actually, operations in terms of what they are. I respect the hell out of them, and I think they're super cool. Um, but in some respects... I think Red Collar yeah. is the big one, right? Yeah, that's one of the biggest, for sure. Uh, there's, a, there's a few. Uh, 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 that, that one's in um, Qingdao. There's, there's a couple in, in China. There's a couple in Eastern Europe. There's a um, well-known ones in Portugal as well. They're all over. I mean, uh, generally speaking, though, um, they will be in lower labor-cost countries because uh, once that, all that heavy machinery is purchased, you can just move the heavy machinery to a lower-cost country. Like a lot of that, a lot of ready where is moving over to Vietnam and Indonesia. It's, it's kind of how it always goes, I guess. Um, and again, lots of respect for them. But I, for, for me, it's not for like, they're not the right compromise for me. I, I don't want to compromise on, on the, the fit portion, which I think is everything. I think everyone is like, there's a, there's a standard which everyone can really quickly hit. Like, if you want to use nice fabric, just go get it, buy it, right? Just pay a little more, but you can buy it. Um, so there's, it's a low barrier to entry there. It's, um, you can just buy nice fabric. You can pay more for nicer finishing and sewing. But what I think, at least especially me personally, if something doesn't fit right, I don't care how nice the fabric is, and I don't care how nice it's been hand-stitched. If it doesn't fit right, it's like it feels wrong, <laughs> and it's just not worth wearing. Uh, so, the, yeah, I'm a little stubborn on on that, um, but I think it's worth it. Uh, and I think there's totally a lot of nice made-in-measure factories, without a doubt. They make a really nice product. It's just whether or not it fits right. Yeah, fit is way more important. And it's, it's kind of funny because a lot of these, I mean, these brands come and go. You know, like so many online made-to-measure companies come and go. And, and then like John was saying, there's all these independent people too who will take your measurements and send them off. And they kind of blend together because most of them list like the same, yeah, well, they're made at the same place, which, you know, you might not even know. But but then they, they offer the same fabrics and pretty much the same customizations. And, you know, it's it's kind of like the only differentiating factor from a customer perspective is the fit. And you don't really know how it's going to fit until you try it out. So there are a couple that I've tried that tend to fit me better, but I think it, it might just be that they're like house cut, you know, fits me better, like their starting pattern. But uh, but I haven't found any made to measure that was like, you know, perfect. Like there, where there wasn't like a collar gap or just like something with a sleeve pitch or like something that was slightly off that just kind of like takes away from your experience wearing it. Yeah. I mean, that the... That also, I can understand, uh, from a consumer's perspective, I can also really understand where that's, there's an element of the made-to-measure thing that always gets me, because uh, you're buying sight unseen. You're seeing it in the sense that you can see it on, uh, on the mannequin, but you're not seeing it on you, and um, that, that, I can see that being a point of friction there. Um, I don't know if you guys know that I do this, but I like 
cutting what I do for customers that want to see if I'm right for them. What I'll do is I will take their measurements. I'll get on my table and I'll make them a pattern. And then uh, I cut out a pattern. I, I have like a bunch of kind of just standard fabrics in, in the showroom. I, I cut the fabric. I make up a quick basted fitting by myself. I make a quick basted fitting. And then uh, if they're like really in a rush, I'll like do it in like three or four days. But um, another really awesome benefit of the barbershop is, is that regulars of the barbershop are here every three weeks. So it works out that, like, I take your measurements today. The next time they're in for their haircut, they have a fitting waiting for them. Um, and so uh, we, we give it a try. We, we, and it's a great uh, way for them to see as well as for me to see. Because uh, I don't ever want to make anything for anyone that's not going to be nice. There's, I think it's both a waste of my time as well as a waste of the customer's time. Um, and even though it takes me a long time to make that pattern and a long time to make that basted fitting, I think it's worth it because the person, the customer gets a try it on actually tangibly see what this might look like for them. It, uh, they'll, they'll put it on, look at themselves in the mirror and then they can actually say, Oh, okay. The, the lapel is a little too straight. It's a little too big. Uh, I want it, you know, I want to put a little belly in there and I want to put it, make it a little bit smaller. Uh, we can actually see where the gorge line will be on them. We'll see actually how the shoulder fits, like all these things. Um, and it has happened uh, a touch where like people like take a look at it and maybe it won't translate and they won't get it. And, uh, and they'll be like, no, thanks. It's not for me. And although being a bummer, I, I would prefer that than the made to measure systems where you give them money today and then a couple of weeks later, you get something, and then it becomes this fight between you, the customer, and the company, where the company has already sunk money and time into making the thing, and so they're incentivized to make you take it. Um, yeah, they'll do some alterations to make it better, but whatever, basically anything to make you take it, because mm -hmm. to refund you would be the least palatable option. And then you're on the other side fighting to just get what you paid for. You're just wanting something nice, which is also reasonable. Mm -hmm. So uh, mine, even though I spend a lot of time on making it based and sometimes it's not what the customer wants, that I think is the right way. It's the equivalent of me. It's the bespoke version of some, you walking into J. Crew, trying on a shirt. And if you like it, you buy it. If you don't like it, you put it down. No harm. No, you didn't spend a dime, and you got to see it. It's it's my equivalent. Um, and every once in a while, there will be a customer that I'll get, and one one comes to mind. He he was a a guy shopping for his wedding, and he came in, and we talked, um, and I told him that I do this, and he he was like, okay, sure, because he realized that it was a no risk thing, and it was. No skin off his back. He came back like two weeks later for his fitting, and he saw it. He was like, oh, cool. And he ended up placing an order. When I ended up delivering that suit to him for his wedding, he said, you know, it, had you never done that first fitting for me, 
I'm not sure I would have went with you because you were a little bit more expensive than where I was looking at for other things. But it was cool because I got to see it and I got it. Like I understood like this is what it's going to look like. It was really, uh, it was like helpful. It was really helpful. And so um, every time I think like this is a really stupid idea, spending multiple hours doing evasive fitting for, for, for a maybe – I think back about that guy and be like, all right, you never know. And this is the right move. Well, how much does that basic fitting, the, the basic garment, though, become the full production suit, right? That becomes like your pattern for then what eventually becomes a full suit, right? So it's not work that's lost. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's not work that's lost unless uh, they don't want it. Unless you really blow it. <laughs> yeah. But it, yeah, I mean, it, it's true. No, it's a, it's a good like starting point because like um i'll take that i'll obviously take that pattern and then manipulate it further so that the fit's perfect but um yeah i mean like luckily it doesn't happen often uh but it does happen people don't want something sometimes so it's like or like then they like really calculate oh wait a second here the the price is like that and then so yeah, it's definitely not foolproof for sure. I've I've been thinking and I've been debating about whether or not I pay or, or ask for like something of a deposit, like a let's say like a nominal like hundred bucks to keep people on a sort of thing, um, and then refund them that hundred bucks in credit like when they buy something. Uh, I was debating that back and forth, but then anything over a dollar kind of takes away the best parts of it, like the risk, a hundred percent risk free of. You being able to see it, sort of thing. So, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe maybe it changes in the future. But for now, it's you get a free free bespoke fitting. You hear that? Get in there right now before yeah, it changes. You heard it here. Free suits of Bombolinos, everybody. <laughs> All right, slow down, slow down. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, this this is fascinating. This is I love I love talking about this kind of stuff. But we also have a section what we call rapid fire, where we'll ask you like. Uh, quick questions, and then it's like one or two word answers. You, and you're totally unprepared for it. Are you ready? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, Oxfords or Brogues? Uh, loafers. Brogues. Brogues. Morning shower or evening shower? Both, actually. Pretty regularly both. Oh, twice yeah. a day? Okay. Your favorite Bond actor? Uh, Daniel Craig. I like him the best. He's coolest. Great pick. Yeah. Cardio or lifting? pizza <laughs> i like that one too uh chino's jeans or trousers always trousers spring summer style or fall winter style yeah definitely the the spring summer look nowadays i like uh okay. like the lighter stuff now yeah well especially in southern california it's yeah. all it's all the same <laughs> uh notch lapels or peak lapels your preference me personally i like uh I like the notch on the uh, the three two roll. That's my favorite. Okay, and then loafers or sneakers? Loafers. I know. I noticed that you were one of the best dressed guys in LA when we were out there that we ran into. Thank so. you. Thank you. Yeah, I like that. Uh, and then if you're like get in the shower, you want to pump yourself up. What song are you playing? <laughs> I don't do that often, but I mean, I guess I would like you know put a little like stadium rock. Come on, feel the noise or something. I don't well, know. I don't okay. do that often. Though. <laughs> nah. All right. Well, you survived rapid fire. Great, great cool. answers. Thank you. Very good. Well, so that's Bombolinos. Uh, 
I think I actually have a couple of pictures I still want to put up from when we were out there, but people can check you out on Instagram. And if they're in L.A., stop in the shop, stop by the barber shop, see what Brian's up to. Very cool stuff. And uh, what is what are you like excited about over the next like six to twelve months in the in the company? Uh, over the next year, um, for some odd reason, there's a lot of interest in Chicago. For like. I don't even have a very strong network of people in Chicago, but like some people... I noticed that there's a lot of like suit companies out of Chicago. So Yeah, some people are asking me in Chicago, and then I have a, I have a few, very few friends that live in Chicago, but they, uh, they have a few things that I made for them, and they're getting compliments, and they're asking um, about it. So I'm shooting to be in Chicago maybe in August, September this year to visit a few people. Um, so yeah, that's that's that. Uh, outside of that, um, yeah, kind of just excited to keep uh, building the customers steady and slowly, slowly uh, out here in LA. Um, but yeah, maybe Chicago. I'm coming at you soon. <laughs> What's the barbershop called? The barbershop in LA is called the Barbershop Club. It's uh, we're in Koreatown. We're in uh, the the historic, beautiful Hotel Normandy, uh, a landmark hotel of Los Angeles. Um, and yeah, we're, uh, we got a lot of cool things in the bar uh, or in the, in the hotel. We have a great bar. We have a barbershop. I'm, I'm here too. Um, we have a really nice, really fancy, uh, tasting menu restaurant next door. Um, and then kind of a, classic old-timey diner uh, on the first floor um yeah so yeah if you're in koreatown we have valet um we'll see you soon all right yeah well let's catch up with you in uh six to twelve months see what's going on but thanks for coming on the show my pleasure thanks for having me it was nice nice chatting uh and yeah hopefully i see you guys soon Thank you for listening to the Buttoned Up Podcast, a collaboration between John Shanahan of The Cavalier and Brock McGough of Modest Man, and we will see you next week.